for, I've been at First Press for about almost eight years. Um, and since that time, I hear a lot of good things, so it's good to finally get to be here with you all uh, this afternoon. Well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. If you would turn to Luke chapter 7 with me, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us that is set aside for us to, to worship you, to rest in you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you teach us, the way that you convict us, and the way that you encourage us. And I pray that you would do those things this morning. I pray that you would be with my words, that they would be the, those that you have set aside for me to say. And Holy Spirit, would you apply this word to our hearts? Would you draw us close to yourself? And would you shape us into the people that you have called us to be? In the precious name of Jesus, amen. So our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. The very first words in Calvin's Institutes. That book, obviously, is one of the most influential books, theological books in, in modern times, where Calvin lays out all that he, he believes um, and he says at the very beginning, if you're going to understand what it is to live in this world, to know what God would require of us, if we're going to have true wisdom, which wisdom is knowledge applied to life, true wisdom, we need to understand who God is and who we are. And that is something that, especially if we have uh, been in the church for any period of time, if we've grown up in the church or have been here for years, it's that kind of a thing that we tend to think that we've got it. We understand. We know who God is. We know he's the creator. We know that he is holy and perfect. And we know that we're sinners. We know that we're in need of grace. We know those things. But really knowing it requires that we apply it. That's wisdom. And oftentimes our actions betray that we don't understand who God is as well as maybe we should. And we don't understand who we are as well as maybe we should. And what we see in this passage is the centurion's actions proved that he actually did have a solid understanding of who God was, of who this Jesus 
was, and he had an understanding of who he was. And it was the understanding of those things that led him to act rightly. It led him to respond appropriately. So I believe that what we learn from this passage is that when we have a proper understanding of Jesus' authority and a proper understanding of our own unworthiness, that will lead to the only proper response, which is faith. So in this story, we have Jesus, who's now amassing all these crowds, and people are following him wherever he would go, wherever he would teach. And as he's going into Capernaum, he has these Jewish elders come up to him and say, Jesus, there's this centurion who sent us, and he wants you to heal his servant who he loves and is desperately ill, and he deserves it, Jesus. He's not like the other centurions. He's a good guy. Would you please do this? So Jesus goes with them, presumably to heal him. On the way, another group, this time the centurion's friends, they come up and say, Jesus, he sent us to you a second time to say he understands who you are. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but I understand the authority you have. So I know that all you need to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And then Jesus marvels at this man's faith. And his servant is healed. I kind of recap that story because what I want to do is I want to look at the whole thing, keep that whole story in mind. And we're just going to kind of pluck out some of these things that I, I think that we need to learn from the centurion. This centurion who, in this time when so many people had a misunderstanding of who Jesus was, he gets it right. When people thought Jesus is, is some teacher that I can follow, a good teacher, but they didn't understand the authority over life and death that he had, that's very applicable to where we are today. Lots of people think that Jesus is a good teacher while still denying the authority that he has as the Son of God. So how does the centurion get it right when so many other people get it wrong? First of all, he understands Jesus' authority. So a little background on centurions. What's a centurion? A centurion is an officer in the Roman army. The Romans, of course, were at that time the most powerful empire on earth. And a Roman, or a centurion, excuse me, was a commander of about a hundred other soldiers. They would be, it was the highest rank that a Roman soldier could, could achieve uh, as, as a soldier. These men were well respected, they were likely wealthy, they were well thought of, and they had authority. They were used to being obeyed. So that leads us to the question, what's authority? That's another thing that we assume. We assume a lot of these words, that when we say a word, we mean the same thing as the person sitting next to us. So authority is one of those words that we need to look at make sure that we are understanding what we mean by authority. Authority is the right of control over someone or something. So when you have authority, it means that within whatever sphere, whatever range that you have authority in, you have the right to make decisions, and those decisions must be followed. That means that it doesn't matter, those who are under a person's authority, it doesn't matter if they agree with the decisions, if they like the decisions, it means that they simply have to obey those decisions because they are under that person's authority. We don't like to think of it that way, generally as Americans. When we think of authority, we want to put ourselves under the authority of someone that we like or agree with so that we never have to do anything uncomfortable or something that goes against what we, we might want to do. But that's not how authority works, not how true authority works. 
So in verse 8, when the centurion, through his friend, says to Jesus, I too am a man set under authority, he's showing that he understands that Jesus has the authority in the area where he needs the authority. He needs his servant to be healed, wants his servant to be healed, and he understands that Jesus is the one who has the authority to do this. So in that, he's recognizing that Jesus' authority is of a different kind, and it is higher than any human authority. It's higher than his authority. As powerful and influential as a man as he would have been in that day, Jesus' authority was higher even than his. I already said that Americans tend to not like authority. If we don't like a particular president, we'll say, ah, I'm not going to follow this guy. Not my president. Or if we don't like a boss, we go get another one. We, we don't like authority. We want to be under the authority that we like. And unfortunately, that mindset tends to slip into how we even view Jesus. We question authority constantly. So that means when we look at Jesus' authority, we might ask, whether we don't do it consciously or uh, actively, subconsciously, we can think, does Jesus really really have the right to forgive? Does he really have the right, the authority to heal, to instruct, or to judge? But this centurion understood authority in a way that we often don't. He understood that in that position, true authority has to be obeyed. Those soldiers that were under him had to do the things that he said. But in that, he also understood the limits of his own authority. He understood that, yes, he could, he could command those centurions, he could command his servants, and they would do all the things that he would do, but he had no authority to save his dying servant. He couldn't do it. He was helpless. But Jesus, Jesus, as he had been proving through his ministry, had authority over life and death, over heaven and earth. In, in the Hebrew scriptures, when they would say things like life and death or, uh, or heaven and earth, those opposites, it was meant to convey the idea of those things and everything in between. The idea that, that this means everything. So when it says that Jesus has authority over life and death, it means he has authority over life, death, and everything in between. He is Lord of all. So the centurion, somebody who's used to authority, recognizes authority in Jesus, and he goes to him, recognizing that he needs this kind of authority. Understanding authority also means that you, he would understand that it comes from somewhere. Authority is not just something that you can pick up and have just because you, you want it. Authority is given. The centurion's authority came through Rome, so he had to represent Rome when he would command and when he would lead. A president's authority in America comes from the people who voted for him. Even a king, a king's authority comes through the institution of the monarchy, the fact that he was part of that line. His authority came from something that was set up, from something else, through his birthright. So the centurion uses an interesting phrase when, when he talks about his own authority. He says, I too am a man set under authority. Now when we talk about authority, we're more likely to say, uh, I am in authority, or I have authority over some sphere. I have authority over my kids. I'm in authority over my kids. But he says that he's set under 
authority. And in saying it that way, he is showing that he understands it's not his own authority. That authority has been given to him by Rome to exercise according to their will. Matthew 28, we read this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples as they are about to, or as he is about to ascend into heaven, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, remember, heaven and earth, everything in between, all authority has been given to Jesus. So here we see even Jesus' authority as the Son of God was given to him by the Father. But though Jesus' authority was given to him, it was given to him in a different and a unique way. Because Jesus is the Son of God, the divine Son of God. So when his authority is given, it's given without chance of revocation. And it actually is his authority. We heard earlier Psalm 110, we heard Hebrews 1. So all the way back in the Old Testament, you hear these verses that are talking about uh, the authority that the Son of God, the Son of Man has, this authority that he had from before time, this authority that is well and truly his in a way that no human can truly have and own authority. So in that, Jesus' authority is different, it's unique. He has the power to do these miracles and these things that he's doing as he's walking the earth in his ministry. Yet he also has the absolute, undeniable right to do the things that he does. As parents, if if we are parents, we understand authority to an extent. Because I have authority over my kids. They don't I was going to say they don't always like it. They don't usually like it. Because when I make a rule, they have to follow it right now. But as they get older, as they grow, eventually that authority that I am set under right now for a time, that will fade and they will move on. But Jesus' authority is permanent, enduring, never-ending, over heaven and earth, over life and death. Jesus has ultimate authority. He has the right to heal, to save, to forgive, to judge. So as Calvin said, we need to understand who God is. To have true wisdom. And in that, we need to understand who Jesus is. We need to understand who our Savior is. And we need to understand his authority. The lengths of it, the depths of it. It's too easy to give lip service to Jesus' authority and not bow our knees and our lives to what he says. He has ultimate, absolute right to declare how we are to live, the things that we are to do and not do. And he has the authority to judge those who forgive him, or who who, uh, reject him, I'm sorry. He has authority to heal, and he has the authority to forgive. The question, the first question that we need to ask ourselves when we look at this, at this passage and as we look at Jesus is, do we truly understand Jesus' authority over life and death and everything in between? The centurion got it. That's why he goes to Jesus. That's why he goes to the person in the higher authority. But he also understood his own unworthiness. See, once we recognize who God is, I think that's the first place to start. Understanding who God is. Then we look at ourselves. 
Then we look and see who are we in light of this holy, perfect God, in light of Jesus who has authority over all creation. Now who am I? How do I relate under that authority, to that authority? And we are not always good at that. Again, in this culture, we are constantly told over and over and over again, whether it's on TV or billboards or magazines or everywhere you look, you are good. You've got this. You can do it. You are worth it. Whatever variation on those kinds of things, we're bombarded with it constantly. Yet the centurion understands this a different way. That word worthy or worth shows up twice in this passage. Now, in the Greek... It's used in two different ways, or it's actually two separate words. Both of them in this translation are translated as worthy. But the first time it's said, and we'll look at these closely in just a minute, the first one is, is good in comparison to something else. So when you say it's worthy, you, you take two things and you say this one is worthy in comparison to, to this other one, which is less worthy. The second one is adequate or sufficient. Just on its own, not comparing it to anything else, it's adequate. So the first time that we see the word worthy, it's when the centurion had sent these Jewish elders to ask for his help. So what do they do? Let's look at verses 4 and 5. It says, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy, there's our word, to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So the elders are arguing to Jesus, this man is worthy for you to heal his servant. And why is he worthy? Because he did some good stuff for us. Because compared to all the other centurions who don't care at all about us, he likes us. He's a good guy. He even helped us build our synagogue. He helped us build our church. He's worthy, Jesus. He had loved Israel when others had despised it. So that led these Jewish leaders, these elders to try and convince Jesus to heal his servant based on this man's merit, based on the fact that they thought that he deserved it. And they should have known better. These who had grown up with the scriptures and, should, and, and had experienced the sacrifices and things that had to be done that were all meant to show the depth of human depravity and need are still looking to this man's merit and saying that somehow he's done enough to be deserving of Jesus' mercy. But the centurion, this Roman, this outsider, understands somehow better than what the elders did. So he sends this second group. Now his friends come to Jesus we don't know why. Maybe the centurion heard that Jesus was coming and, and maybe he heard what the elders said and thought that he had to get it straight. But whatever it was, this second group comes as Jesus is nearing his house and, and let's look at what they say. Uh, beginning in verse 6, the second half of verse 6. They say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy. There's that second word, worthy, that's a different worthy. It's not talking about in comparison to somebody else. 
comparison to the other centurions, the other Romans, it's talking objectively in himself, compared only to himself. I am not worthy. I am not good enough to have you come into my house. Objectively, I am not good enough. These elders had tried to convince Jesus that he was worthy, and Jesus was still going to, to him to heal his servant. But the centurion recognizes that he's not. It's amazing how we see the Holy Spirit working in this centurion's heart to understand this thing, this outsider, understand this truth that the elders should have, but yet they didn't. There's an element of comparison that can be helpful when we think about this. I don't know if anybody has ever tried to lose weight or get in better shape. I have. It usually lasts a couple of weeks. But you do it, and sometimes maybe it's going really well. And you've started to get into the shape that you want to be in, and you're feeling really good about yourself, and you're saying, I'm going to go to the gym. You go to the gym, and you look around, and there's all those people who have been there their entire life, and they make you look awful. And you realize just how far you have to go. That comparison helps us to realize that the one that we're really compared to the only one that we can be truly compared to when we talk about worthiness before God is Jesus because the standard of what makes someone worthy is absolute perfection. We can compare ourselves to other people and see how, fall, how far short we fall, but when we compare ourselves to the Holy One, to Jesus himself, perfection, we realize just how desperately unworthy we are. The attitude that we're okay or a little bit better than somebody else. I don't sin quite as bad as the, the person next to me. I'm a little bit more faithful than my brother or sister. It sneaks in subtly and we need to be constantly on guard for that because the only one that we are compared to is Jesus Christ himself, the perf perfect and holy one. And in this case, no matter how subjectively worthy we are, we are objectively unworthy, every single one of us on our own. But praise God that that's not where this stops. Sometimes it feels when, like when we look at things like this, it's just getting beat up and hammered and told how bad we are, and that's not my intent today. But it is important that we recognize this. If we're going to understand who God is, and we're going to understand who we are. We need to see how bad we are. We need to spend a little bit of time there. That's why we confess our sin. That's why we take a good, honest look at that. Because we see how desperately unworthy we are. And the more that we recognize that, the better and the sweeter the grace of God is. Because we realize how much we don't deserve it. We need to understand who Jesus is. We need to understand his power and authority over everything. We need to understand who we are, our unworthiness, our desperate need of help. And then, the more that we grasp those truths, then we will be able to res appropriately respond in faith like we see the centurion do here. See, he was a rich man, wealthy man, powerful man. I'm sure he tried all of the things that he could have done. The medicine, the doctors, whatever he could do to heal his servant. And then he could have said, 
there's nothing else I can do and just leave it alone. He could have dropped it. He could have put up the want ad for the next servant and moved on with his life. But he recognized this authority, this person that he had heard of who was walking around healing the sick, forgiving the sinners, and he chose the right option because he understood who Jesus was. And his response was to ask for help. He didn't just stop and say, well, if Jesus happens to come through here, then maybe I'll throw my hand up or something. No, he sends two groups of people to go talk to Jesus and ask him to come heal his servant. And he didn't just say it if, if you want to or maybe and kind of sheepishly, but he's boldly asking Jesus for the healing of this man that he loved. And he asked because he understood that Jesus was the one who could answer. The doctors couldn't do it. Nobody else could do it. He couldn't do it. No matter how powerful and influential he was, he needed Jesus. So he asks. Now, as good Presbyterians, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God is absolutely in control of everything. He does as he pleases. He does as he will. But... If that keeps us from asking God for the things that we need and the things that we want, it shows that we don't understand his compassion and his love for his people. We could go through the scriptures and pull out every verse, every passage that tells us to come to the Father and and ask for the things that we need to give our requests to him. There are so many. We could spend hours digging through and finding those. The centurion asked where we often don't. We just forget or we do something else. We try and do all the things that we could do instead of going to the one who actually has authority to heal, to save, to sanctify us. Everything that we could need. In James 4, James 4, 2, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. It's not about getting all the stuff that we want. It's about going to the one who loves us, who gave himself for us with our needs and with our requests. Oh, that would be the first place that we would go. We need to ask like the centurion did, and then we need to trust like the centurion did. He sends his servants And then when they say, when he he explains that he understands the authority and that he only needs, needs Jesus to say the words, then it says that Jesus marveled. There are only two places in Scripture where it says that Jesus marveled. The one is here. The other one is in Mark 6. And that one is actually when he's in his hometown of Nazareth. And he's marveling at the unbelief of the people who should know better. In that case, it's the church, it's the people who were close to him that should have known better, that should have had faith, and they didn't. Yet here, it's this Roman, this outsider that recognizes who Jesus is and has faith, and his response shows that he truly believed it. He asked Jesus to heal him. And then he trusted. He left the decision to Jesus, knowing that he had the authority to do it, knowing that whatever decision Jesus made, this centurion had to abide by it because it was his authority. 
He trusted that he was a good and kind and gracious Savior. We need to ask for those things that we need. We need to trust God for the answer, recognizing that the answer won't always look how we want. It doesn't mean that we're going to get everything the way that we want it, when we want it, but it does mean that God will answer. He is faithful to do the things that he has promised. We can know that because he's good and because he's gracious, he will give his children the things that they need. He will heal us. He will forgive us of our sins. He will sanctify us and enable us to put sin to death. He will do all of those things that we need if we would just ask. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in him. When we ask according with God's will, our prayers will be answered. Our requests will be answered by the one who has the authority to do it and the power to do it. So Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. And when he does, he turns to the crowd and he says, Do you see this? This is the faith that you should have. I haven't seen this in all of Israel, in all of the church, yet here I see it in this centurion who believes in me. He understands that he's not worthy, but I am good. So that centurion's faith had an effect on more than just him and his servant. It wasn't just this small sphere, but as he had faith, it now impacted all who saw it and all who saw the way that Jesus answered. If we believe, if we trust, if we understand these things that we learn from Scripture, it doesn't just stop with us. It's not just about us. It's about the body. It's about our brothers and sisters seeing our faith and us learning and growing from each other's faith. We help encourage each other, and not only each other within the church, but those outside the walls of the church. In a world that's so dark and so frustrating, they can see that we have a good God and a good Savior. And though we are so desperately unworthy, which every single person is proving every day, God is still willing and faithful and able to answer those requests. So as the crowd hears it, they had to ask that question. As I'm following this Jesus, do I believe like that centurion did? And it's the same question that we should ask ourselves constantly because we drift. We have times where we're strong in the faith and we truly believe what we read in the scriptures and what we hear. But then we have times where we're distracted by the world and by life and by all these other messages that are being pumped into us day by day. We have to ask ourselves regularly, do I truly understand Jesus' authority? His power to heal, to save, to forgive, to sanctify. Do I truly understand that he owes me nothing? That he gives graciously because he loves me. Do we really understand, do we really believe that he is willing and able to answer those requests as we ask in alignment with his will? Those are the questions that we need to ask regularly and pray, I pray, that our response will betray that we really do understand who God is, that we really do understand who our Savior is and who we are. We need his help for that desperately. So let's pray together. 
Lord, we need you every single day, every moment. We need you to remind us who you are. We need to be reminded who we are, not so that we would be beat up, but so that we would remember our constant need of you. Would you do that for us today? Would you encourage us? Please remind us of your goodness and your grace. Let our response be that of faith, like this centurion, like this uh, person who seemed so far from you, yet he understood who you were and responded appropriately. Help us to respond appropriately in every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.